Hi, welcome to the final episode of season one of Risk Engineers Talk Governance. In this final episode, due diligence engineers Richard Robinson and Gay Francis talk about ISO 31000, the risk management standard and its consequences, especially with relation to WHS legislation in Australia or the Oc Health and Safety Act in Victoria. We hope you enjoy the episode. Please do support our work and subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating. Also share it across your network if you know other people who may be interested. Also, this is episode 10, so please do check out the other episodes if you haven't done so yet. We look forward to bringing you season two. If you want to keep in touch with Richard and Gay's work and their due diligence consulting, please do head to R2A website. The details will be in description and you can also sign up to their newsletter that will keep you up to date. Enjoy the episode. Uh, good morning, Richard, and welcome to our podcast, um, episode 10 of our first season. Very exciting. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Um, we're doing this podcast remotely as we both had the lurgy this week, so keeping away from yeah, each other. So. We thought we'd finish with something that's probably one of the things that we get asked about the most, and that's ISO 31000, the risk management standard and its consequences. Um and the the difficulties that this has, especially in relation to the WH and OHS legislation and, and the contradictions there. So Richard, I'll let you launch in and then I'll um I'll, I'll chip in as as we go. Well, thank you, Gay. Um look, the, the key point here is, and I, I guess that this has puzzled us for a long time because it's been going on for a long time now, is that the, the OHS Act started in Victoria in 2004 and the, the um, Model Act commenced in most jurisdictions in 2012. 2011-12, Western Australia adopted it last year and Kiwiland adopted it in 2015. And the legislation is absolutely crystal clear in its objectives um, that the purpose of the legislation is to achieve the highest level of protection um, as is reasonably practicable for everyone. Uh, it's absolutely crystal clear. And we were just talking about, we're doing some stuff in VCAT where we were asked to read some, some case law. And one of the points they're making is that the High Court's making at different points um, is that the more precise a... Um, a parliament is about the intention of the legislation, um, the less room that the courts have to manoeuvre to interpret. So if the objective is absolutely crystal clear, then that's what you're supposed to do. Now, what I've got us completely confused is ISO 31000, that process there is contradictory to that act, at least when you're dealing with health and safety. And what puzzles us the greatest is that this, 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 this confusion is sort of reflected throughout Australian standards everywhere. Just to give you a sort of a, um, an understanding that there's no such thing as a target level or tolerable level of risk or safety because the legislation is quite clear. You've got to achieve the highest level as you reasonably can. Now, just to sort of emphasize that, this is from the Managing Health and Safety um, HB handbook thing from Standards Australia. And it says, importantly, contemporary WH legislation does not prescribe an acceptable or tolerable level of risk. The emphasis is on the effectiveness of controls, not estimated risk levels. It may be useful to estimate a risk level for the purposes such as communicating which risks are the most significant or prioritising risks within a risk treatment plan. In any case, care should be taken to avoid targeting risk levels that may prevent further risk minimizations efforts that are reasonably practical to implement. Now, that's an absolutely perfect restatement of what the intention of the model and WHS legislation is. 
and that's yeah. in the handbook of the risk management standard. But if we read out what the process of the risk management standard is, it's establish the context, do a risk assessment, hazard base, which is hazard risk identification, hazard risk analysis, hazard risk evaluation. So that's your criteria and your tolerable and acceptable level of risk and then risk treatment. So the two things don't match up there. Yeah, and the weirdest thing is, is that if you look at a standard like um, the network safety standard, AS5577, um, which is mandated by a lot of regulators, it tells you to use the risk management standard approach. It's absolutely crystal clear about it. Um, even though throughout the words throughout, it's saying at different times, um, you shall, for example, initiate action so far as is reasonably practicable, and then it goes on with all the things you should do. And I've, I've forgotten exactly where it is, but there's one bit there where it says you shall eliminate hazards so far as reasonably practicable. And if you can't eliminate them, you'll minimise them as low as reasonably practicable. And then at the back, it's actually got, you know, how to do a formal safety assessment. It basically tells you to comply with the principles ISO 31000 uh, and to sort of, um, you know, choose target levels of risk and safety and so forth, which is specifically against the will of all Australian parliaments. So we so find this... So I think this is sort of showing that there's a mismatch, isn't there, between um, the, the, the things that the um, senior decision makers and the boards worry about, which is the WHS legislation and, and things like that. And, and I don't think there's any any confusion there that they, they, they understand what their requirements are and the desire to be um, compliant with that. Um, but the tools and the processes that the engineers are using to do the day-to-day -day work in organisation the standards is what cre is creating that confusion and there's a mismatch between the two. Um, and what we've sort of found is it hasn't been fed down into the organisation yet. So as I said, the boards and the senior exec understand the requirements of the WHS legislation and what they have to do to achieve it. But because they've got the, all of these embedded processes and policies that often reflect the processes in the risk management standard, and that's what the engineers are doing on a day-to-day -day basis, there's this mismatch and they've been trying to put the principles of the WHS legislation within their current current framework. And I'm not sure that that's, um, I don't know that that's been successful. I'm sure it hasn't. Now, from the point of view of the engineers, uh, I mean, this office was um, you know central to the Engineers Australia Safety Case Guidelines, which were signed off by the National Risk Engineering Society in 2016, I think. It was reviewed by a barrister in Queensland to make sure that it was you know, tightened and consistent with the legislation. And all the points we're making here, that was basically making. And what's got us completely stumped, um, I mean, that 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 safety case guideline is a, is a recognised, um, I think it was a, what was the actual term the engineers Australia use? Um, practice practice note. note. Practice note. And so if you're a professional engineer working in Australia, you need to understand what the practice notes from the intellectual body are saying because if you're all wind up in court, an Australian standard, well, I'll give you another quote. Uh, this is from um, Paul Wentworth, a partner of Minter Ellison. Engineers should remember that in the eyes of the court, in the absence of any legislative or contractual requirement, an Australian standard amounts only to an expert opinion about usual recommended practice in the performance of any design. Reliance on an Australian standard does not relieve an engineer from a duty to exercise his or her skill and expertise. So, um, you know, if you know that the, that the legislation says this and you still choose to do it consistent with an Australian standard, you, you're talking yourself into a very difficult place. Um, if it all goes wrong, you all wind up in court, I suppose, and you have expert witnesses like us acting against you. I suppose it even puzzles us even more because 
Um, the whole point of the exercise is that the Engineers Australia is meant to be an intellectual body for engineers and engineering in Australia. And yet, um, I, and I don't understand why Engineers Australia keeps encouraging engineers to put their intellectual property into Australian standards when these Australian standards are quite contradictory and is resolved by the practice note from Engineers Australia. So there's something that's really mismatching here and not quite right that needs resolution. Um, I, I don't know that we're going to solve this on the spot, but... But what we're saying is Engineers Australia could have a role in playing to promote what is best practice in the industry um, outside of Australian standards and should be doing that. Am I allowed to have my little rant about... Yes, you can have your little rant. You can have your little rant. (laughs) See, one of the things I don't get to, you know, apart from the curious matter of telling engineers to put their intellectual property into Australian standards rather than to documents that belong to Engineers Australia. Because I've got to tell you, if you look at the American engineering institutions, they don't give up their intellectual property for free to third parties. Um, but under the Code of Ethics, for example, of Engineers Australia, you've got to give credit where credit's due. And um, engineers, um, Standards Australia just sort of refer to organisations rather than individuals actually put the intellectual time and effort into the damn thing, unlike, for example, NFPA standards in the US. Uh, it's something I just simply haven't understood that, that, it, that Engineers Australia just keeps promoting Standards Australia like it's a kindred society. It's not. It's a commercial entity doing commercial things. Okay. That's that's your little rant. And, That'll um, be enough. That'll go be good. Off, but I don't think you need it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we bring it back to ISO 31000 and its contradictions, I think what we're saying is, you know, we, we've been advised on a number of occasions when we brief legal counsel for organisations that the ISO 31000 does not meet the requirements of the WHS and OHS legislation. Mm-hmm. And you are, you cannot keep using target levels of risk and safety to make safety decisions. Mm-hmm. You can use it as a reporting tool, which is what sort of that paragraph in the handbook says as a useful tool. Um, and there are ways out there that the engineers have specified that you can put your safety argument together to meet the requirements of the WHS legislation. Um, and tool organisations um, realise the mismatch between um, what the board it's sort of trying to achieve and then the processes and policies within an organisation, I think this confusion will continue. Um, and I, I think we touched on it last week, Richard, one of the other confusions or one of the reasons for the confusions is we think that there's been an, uh, a sudden um, increase in the number of um, people from the UK who used to practice in health and safety and, and risk in the UK coming to Australia after Brexit and, um, there, there's been a, been almost uh, a going backwards. I thought we were way on top of the SOFARP approach, um, but ALARP seems to be creeping into more and more processes that we see in organisations. Um, and, and they're trying to say that that they're the same and we've been categorically categorically told on a number of occasions by lawyers that they are not the same and you cannot use the same processes to achieve that. Yeah, what we've noticed is that, I mean, and, and this is sad because a lot of organisations have to go through this process. You know, if your regulator, for example, calls up like double five, double seven, a standard that mandates basically ISO 31000 approach, well, you, you're going to be stuck. You're going to have to do it twice. You're going to have to do it to demonstrate the highest level of precaution has been achieved on the one hand, and then in order to get a licence to trade, you're going to have to do the ALAP approach to satisfy the, the regulator. And that's quite regrettable. Um, but um, that's the way. But until the places. two systems align, there's not nothing else you can do because otherwise you leave yourself 
open for, for litigation in, in the event that something awful happens. Correct. Um, and you have expert witnesses like X against you. That is true. Um, anything, closing comments, Richard, on ISO 31000 and its consequences? Oh, I, I did. I did say before it's it's not the whole document. Uh, I, I mean, we were talking about um, in a six one five eight IOC six one five eight the functional safety assessment standard, and it uses target levels of safety to decide to do the sill allocation up front. Um, that's totally against Australian legislation. I get that. That's not a particular issue, but that doesn't mean the other seven volumes are invalid. You know, once you've decided what the the level you're going to go for is, there, there's a whole lot of validation and verification processes in there. So it's remember it's not. A standard that's recognised good practice. It's the useful ideas in the standards that are well a recognised good practice, and therefore you must consider. Um, and the same thing occurs with ISO thirty one thousand. There are you know, a number of quite important things in there that, that are particularly useful. It's just that the, the basic process acts against the fundamental purposes of the legislation. I don't know how you. I don't know anyone doesn't quite get that, but that's the that's the problem. I think we also touched on it last week. Is is what we're saying is. Um, standards and policies and things like that are, are, are good tools to have but it doesn't stop you, an engineer from thinking you really have to figure it out and use those things and where Richard said the said the um, quote quote before but you really have to take with a grain of salt what what they say and make sure that it's applicable to to what you're what you're applying it to yep. all right I think we might leave it there Richard um, thank you for joining us for episode 10 um, of season one. We hope you've enjoyed the season and we will be back with another season soon. So until then, have a great afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.